The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome. to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Data Gurus today. This is Seema Vasa, your host. Uh, I have a little bit of a different mashup today. We have a panel discussion among my peers as it relates to M&A trends, what's going on in the industry, and also providing some insights for founders as they consider their alternatives for the future. I am sure I'm not alone. Every time you pick up or you read something about what's happening in the industry, you hear about M&A activity, and many founders have come to us and asked us questions about how do they go about this process? What are some of the considerations? And so the goal of this episode is to really demystify some of the kind of the big questions and considerations. Take a listen. And so today we're going to be talking about key drivers of investment in M&A activity in market research. And if you saw the kind of description of the discussion that we're going to have today, you know, there's been just a ton of activity going on in terms of M&A and investment in this vertical. SAP acquired Qualtrics last year for $8 billion in cash, no earnouts. No deferred compensation, no stock, just cash, which is pretty amazing. Tableau was recently acquired by Salesforce for nearly $17 billion. And we're really fortunate to have Bain Capital on the webinar with us today because they've entered an agreement to buy 60% of Kantar. So getting their perspective on the industry is super important to us, as you can imagine. I think... You know, when you look at industry trends and sort of where the money is going in research, without a doubt, the competitive environment is changing pretty dramatically and broadening from this old paradigm of traditional research into one that converges with both business intelligence and data analytics. For the first time ever, traditionally defined market research is in decline. So it's declined by 0.3% over the last year globally. And where you see all of the growth of the industry coming from is from verticals like survey software, social media monitoring, consulting firm research, IT telecom research, syndicated research. And so when you look also at where a lot of the investments and money coming in, it's also going toward more of those tech-centric verticals. So the panel discussion that we're going to have today, we're really fortunate to have a number of leaders that are both actively driving M&A activity and the marketing insights and technology verticals, but also folks that have been through M&A processes before and the client-side perspective. So I'll go ahead and introduce the panelists now. We've got Christoph DeWolf, who's the co-founder and CEO of Insights Consulting. And Christoph's not only a founder, but also sold the majority. I think the majority of the company you sold, right, Christoph, last year? Just a bit more than the majority, 51%. Right, yeah. 
So he's been through a, a recent M&A process. I've not been through one in several years, thankfully. <laughs> we also have Seema Basa, who is a founder in the market research space. She's the founder of Paradigm Precision Sampling, and but also now got suckered into working with me at Oberon Securities as an advisor and is actively working on M&A deals in the space. So welcome, Seema. We also have Soren Hafkett, who is the vice president at Bain Capital. And although Soren worked on the team that managed the Cantor deal, he will not be answering any questions about that Cantor deal today. So don't ask him any. <laughs> he will, however, be talking about his insights and perspectives on Bain's interest in this vertical. So thanks, Soren, for joining us. And then last but not least, I'm super excited. We have Lisa Cortade, who not only the executive director of Global Consumer Insights at Merck, but also the new chairperson for the Insights Association. And Lisa's got a great client-side perspective. I think one of the things that we forget about a lot, both as founders and investors, is the impact that acquisitions have on clients and how that ultimately impacts the research that's delivered. So Lisa, we're super excited to have you and your perspective on today's webinar. So let's kick things off by just having a general conversation about industry trends, I think, in the marketing services and technology sector. Seema, as I mentioned, you know, in the last SMR, GMR, we see traditional market research services growth, you know, in decline, which is, I think, concerning for a lot of folks. And we see new methods and technologies like online analytics, online survey tools, all the ones that I just mentioned really contributing to the bulk of the growth. And now we see an industry that's valued at over 80 billion, which is pretty amazing from where it was when I first started out. In yeah. Research. And growing. Yeah. And so I guess my, my question, and I'll kick things off with you is, you know, what does it mean for traditional full service research firms, both in terms of growth, as well as their ability to monetize their business with an eventual exit? Yeah, that is the important question here, right? We're all, the industry is definitely going through some major changes, as you mentioned. And, you know, what I find interesting is that as insight providers in the industry, you know, the consulting companies have definitely taken the top end of the market in terms of being able to provide insight and recommendations, probably to even a different audience within the brand organizations, probably reaching farther up into the C-suite. And at the bottom end, the DIY platforms are really taking that lower end of the marketplace as a result of probably not even price, honestly, it's probably because they need to move quicker and faster because these guys are really having to make decisions quickly. And so, and then with the new methodologies, Kristen, that you mentioned, it's challenging for traditional market research companies. I always say, first and foremost, as a founder, you have to know what you want. Like, what are your goals, right? Don't be reactive. Put together kind of what your eventual plan is and then proactively plan for that. It's tough out there. Obviously, we can see the competition, but I do think there's opportunities to stay in the game and to either partner up with other companies to specialize. You know, again, the analyst-based companies are doing really well, Forrester, Gartner, all those companies that are providing vertical specialization have really found growth in the space. And I was the same for traditional market research companies. Find a specialization if you decide to stay in the game before an eventual exit. It's super important, maybe not necessarily methodology driven, but vertical driven, but really be proactive in terms of deciding what you want and then going after it. And, you know, companies like Insights Consulting, Schlesinger, they've decided to play a different way. They said, look, the game's getting heated. Let's go out and get some capital and let's be active in the space. And that's another opportunity for traditional full service companies to go as well. There's options. I feel like there's a sense of desperation, but if you proactively manage it, there are definite options to stay in the game. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, Christoph, you might want to chime in here because I know one of the things that Insights has done really well, I think, is created a very differentiated offering from a lot of the full-service research firms. And this is kind of like something that I try to impart on all of my consulting clients, which is you can't just say like, I'm a full-service research firm and I do everything. And, you know, so the jack-of-all-trades days, I feel like, is kind of going behind yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree with, with Seema. I think it's about striking a balance between, on the one hand, having a firm focus and objective and practically chase that objective and define who you are in the space and really don't lose that out of sight. Make sure you keep that on track. At the same time, of course, keep advancing within that focus because, of course, the environment is changing so fast. Technology is offering so much opportunity. Even within that focus that you define as an agency in our case, can you keep on making progress and advancing and adjusting to new reality? And that reality is changing fast and, you know, becoming bigger and becomes more of a challenge, of course, for, for larger organizations. So that agility, but keeping that balance between keeping the focus and then changing along and changing your game, I think that's key. It's not easy. It demands a lot of hard work, sometimes frustration, sometimes you make the wrong choice. But then you, if you have that purpose and long-term goal, I think that really helps to get there. I think that's important because clients are really driving a lot of the change behind this because they're demanding new capabilities, new technologies, the ability to go faster, but also the ability to go deeper. So if you don't stand for something, it's very hard for them to find who you are. But they also look for those partnerships. So you need that specialization, but you also need partners that you can provide a whole solution. Yeah, I guess that was one of my questions for you, Lisa, which is, you know, as I was listening to Christoph and Seema talk, which is, you know, as a client side, like, is there space for research journalists anymore? I mean, on the one hand, they kind of work to aggregate solutions and become more of a partner. But on the other hand, you've got all these new technology companies. I know you get inundated with calls and requests for meetings and new suppliers and new, new tech companies trying to work with you. And, you know, how do you juggle all of that? Well, it's really around what do we need, so what are the problems that we have today that we're trying to solve. And I think the challenge with a lot of the journalist companies, I'd put another word there, traditional journalist companies, that's a shrinking pool. So it's either pairing them with some of the new tech and capabilities because some of the traditional partners have a good service arm that a lot of the tech companies don't have. You're looking for that full complement. And for that missing piece, and often that missing piece is a new startup or an agency that's chosen to specialize in an emerging area. So it's really filtering through all of the new capabilities that are out there and saying, which one of these addresses and problems I actually have. So it's not just chasing shiny new objects. Yeah, it's challenging. I get asked a lot, you know, like, how do you how do you determine, like, what's real and is going to have staying power and what's, like, the newest shiny object that I need to ignore because it's such a distraction. I think that's a challenge for a lot of folks in this industry, I think. Yeah. Soren, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about some of the industry trends that SEMA just highlighted and how that's kind of impacting M&A activity in general. I mean, obviously, given Bain's recent majority acquisition of Kantar, we know that you're a believer in the vertical. <laughs> and I guess my question to you is, you know, do you feel like there is new focus and interest in the sector in general? And if so, why? And as a second part to that, you know, what are the fundamentals that you look for that make a firm interesting from an acquisition standpoint, you know, much like we talked about, 
you know, Cantor, you know, I think has had a reputation as being more of a generalist, but certainly has really diversified their portfolio in the last couple of years by making investments and acquisitions, I think, really smartly in emerging technologies and new ways of doing things. So I would love to get your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing I would probably say is that when we look at this industry, we probably look more at sort of the traditional players, quote-unquote traditional players, and this extended market definition sort of an aggregate because uh, we believe that what the, you know, quote-unquote traditional players need to do is to sort of adopt some of these methodologies that are out there uh, in order to be able to compete effectively in the marketplace. So from that perspective, we sort of, you know, think these lines are blurring to a certain degree and it's kind of hard to, to draw the line with traditional and what sort of extended. And certainly there's some need for the quote-unquote traditional players to adapt in that context. You know, we frankly have a lot of conviction that this is very possible for these types of players to adopt, right? Because, you know, I think one of the great things about technology is that it's very accessible for, you know, for pretty much anybody, while some of the things that are, you know, set the conventional players apart is great customer access, great customer understanding, great understanding of sort of what the data means, you know, adding this to what on top of the pure data. And I think these are things that are actually very hard to replicate in many cases. So we think that actually bringing together sort of the, you know, the traditional approach or quote-unquote traditional approach with a more tech-driven approach is really sort of where this industry will go in the long run. Yeah, I think that's overall where we come out and sort of part of our investment thesis for this industry. You know, around sort of your question around, you know, investment or further investment, you know, I think that's one point that's critically important that, you know, these companies need to invest and probably accelerate their investment uh, because otherwise they, they will, you know, there's a risk that they fall behind given all these changes in technology that doesn't, you can't take it for granted and you sort of have to keep your eye on the ball in that context. So you know, we're certainly looking to continue to invest in this space. I just wanted to add to Soren's point. I think many times we underestimate the humanistic part of what we offer in the industry, the client relationships, the analysis, the kind of wrapping it with what's going on with a client problem and our knowledge of data. And, you know, everybody says, I need tech, I need tech, and all the tech is really important. The wrapper is the people and the relationships with the data and the client and understanding the client problem. And I hope that we feel we gain more confidence in that skill that the industry brings. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I completely agree. And I think you were saying on the one hand, the industry is an attack from the consultant. And on the other hand, they're under attack from the DIY players. But you can also turn it around to a certain degree and say, you know, the traditional players can also add more consulting on top of the pure data. And then maybe when the situation is appropriate, also offer self-service tools that are kind of light versions of their full product suite. So I think it kind of goes a little bit both ways, right? And, and I think there's no need to be overly pessimistic in that context. I completely agree exactly. with you. Yeah, now I can further build on that point very quickly. I think, you know, from our perspective, what we try to do at least is obviously from the position we have, which is basically focusing strongly on consulting inside activation and making sure something meaningful is done with the insights and the data, add a very strong technology layer to that. So it becomes, let's say, kind of redefined space between agencies and clients where actually we kind of see it as a do it together space where, you know, the technology can be used by ourselves as agencies, but also by clients directly. And it's simply a very different way of working together in the future. At least that's what we anticipate that will happen where we see the tech players move up, adding, you know, consultancy and extra layers on top of the tech. And while the more traditional or more consultative agencies are blending in, you know, stronger pieces of technology to probably get to somewhere 
in the same space. We'll see, you know, what is the smartest strategy over time. I'm not sure what it is. We start from the consulting and we bring in the tech and, you know, some others will start from the tech and bring in consulting. But that's fascinating to see where, you know, the industry will be heading towards. I'm very interested in seeing what's going to happen. Yeah, I also think to like Seema's earlier point, Seema, when you were talking about like the importance of partnerships, I mean, I think, you know, there, I get a lot of calls from full service research firms that are like, I need to develop a technology product without really having any of the technology background or the staff with it, you know, the ability to, to do that. And so I think that the idea of these partnerships, these strategic partnerships and integrations become really important. And I think, you know, to Qualtrics point, I think it's something that they've done really well, which is, you know, they've built this platform where they integrate with all these different tools and technologies. So they're not having to build everything themselves, but instead they have these really smart integrations. And likewise, I also think a lot of full service firms kind of overlook, you know, syndicated products that are more, you know, research driven that aren't, don't necessarily have a technical backend that are providing greater insights, greater depth. And see, I think to your point, you know, looking at more the, the insights and consulting part of it rather than just focusing on, you know, how am I going to get to an ARR model, which is not a fit for everyone. Yeah, it goes back to Seema's remark as well. It's all about strategy and about focus. So, you know, the technology serves your purpose and your strategy, not the other way around. Completely yeah. agree with that. And I think sometimes people think they have to lead with the technology. Yeah. Christoph, you're obviously a co-founder and the CEO of one of the fastest growing PE backed firms in the industry. So congratulations on that. I think it's a real testament to the work you guys have all put in over the years. And again, how you have differentiated yourself. So I guess, is there any specific advice that you can give to the founders that are on this webinar today around positioning your firm for funding or sale and how your partnership with Mantha Capital has really impacted your strategy moving forward? Yeah, quite a lot of learning lessons I can definitely share. Maybe the first and foremost important for me would be make sure you are ready. And ready means many different layers. It means mentally ready. Is everybody aligned to do this? Is it best model going forward? You know, do you involve private equity money or is it the strategic sale or you simply carry on organically without any extra funding? So actually it took us two years to unite everyone around private equity as the best route forward for, at that moment, 13 different shareholders, both founders as well as new entering partners. So it's, first of all, alignment. I think the second one was timing. We actually stalled the process of finding a private equity investor with a year, simply because it was not the perfect timing. You know, the EBITDA could be better, the growth numbers, organization-wise, and so on. So I think you need to prove you're a, you're a strong platform company for a private equity investor. And, you know, you need to be ready for this mentally, but also in terms of preparation. I think it's also on a third level, bringing in professionals to guide you through the process. For us, it was the first time. So we involved PwC. We talked to lots of other founders who have gone through the same process to learn from them. It was simply already a challenge to master the language of corporate finance. You know, it's, it's a whole new, very interesting world. And then the final one would be, make sure you get the story together. It all feels so natural in your head. But I think for an investor, you know, the market research industry to them is not the easiest industry to, to invest in. So it takes a bit of, you know, adjusting in their minds, like what is this, all of this? Where are some of the opportunities or the hurdles? So, so how should make sure you have a story that sticks to the investor? In general as well, I would say don't underestimate the impact of on your daily business. Obviously, I think probably goes without saying. But it takes quite a lot of time to guide everyone through the process of getting to the transaction. 
I kind of thought like, you know, once the teaser and IM is ready, it's all going to be solved by PwC, but that's not the case. It becomes even harder and more time consuming throughout the whole process. And it will have a kind of negative, slightly negative effect on organic growth path because you simply need to put in the time and it doesn't go to the clients or, you know, there's a little bit of, bit of impact potentially there. And a final piece of advice I would have is when you negotiate, yeah, it's important the price that is paid and the valuation that is set for the company, but there is more than the money in the valuation now, very much about the journey. It's very much about who you're going to work with. Do they blend in your culture, your ways of thinking? Talk strategy, are you very much aligned? Talk exit as from day one, that's very important. Are you comfortable with the level of risk that the private equity player in our case is putting on the business? Because obviously, you know, the more pressure you have, maybe the journey is a little bit less uh, comfortable. And yeah, I think that's a couple of learning lessons definitely I would like to share, like we've kind of literally gone through when onboarding venture capital. One of the points that you just brought up, Christoph, was, was super interesting and kind of ties in with one of the keynotes from Asimov Congress. So you talked about how important it was to learn, you know, corporate finance. <laughs> and I know um, Chris Bergrain gave this great keynote for those of you who weren't at Asimov Congress. He gave a great keynote talking about sort of the future of marketing. And he has a new book out called Marketing is Finance is Business. And I think there's so many important lessons you can take from that book because I know for myself personally, having, you know, been, you know, founder of several companies in this space, you know, I didn't go to business school and I didn't learn corporate finance doing research day to day. And so it was really something that I had to pick up on very, very quickly when I went into starting and then eventually funding and selling my first company. It was a steep, steep learning curve that was extremely painful. And Christophe might be able to identify with that. But, you know, one of my key takeaways that I always tell founders is like, gosh, get really comfortable with corporate finance if you're going to go down this road. 100% agree. I remember a moment where we started Googling terms in a meeting. <laughs> it's actually it was the first time we heard about the term. So, you know, you want to make sure you have a good conversation. Luckily, yeah. we have Google. Yeah. So, we're in, so if you see people Googling in your meetings where you're talking about acquiring their companies, it's because we don't understand the terms. <laughs> Lisa, I'd love to get your perspective on how the increase in mergers and acquisitions are really impacting client-side buyers. I mean, I think a lot of the times we think about M&A activity from a founder's perspective and how great it is for the company and for the teams, but you know, is it always the greatest thing for clients and particularly when there's so much activity in this space and maybe a preferred supplier you're working with all of a sudden gets acquired and, you know, things change either for the better or the worse. You know, you might be smiling or you might be shuddering when things like this happen. So from your perspective, is all this industry consolidation a good thing or a bad thing for, for you and your fellow client side buyers? I think it's some of those because we had mentioned this before, as we're trying to expand capabilities to move faster, to be more efficient, or on the other side of that equation, to go a lot deeper and understand our customers more richly, it's great to have some of the partners that we have a lot of relationship with and a lot of trust with expand their capabilities. So on the plus side, when you get that infusion of capital, an infusion of technology, new resources, it's fantastic because you can build out your relationship and you can do more together. But there's a downside to it. And Soren had mentioned the interest in a lot of these large traditional generalist organizations that they have customer access. They have access to a lot of large clients. The thing that gets forgotten 
more than you would imagine is that you bought the company. You did not buy the customers. And unfortunately, and as recently as, a, you know, a week ago, really great agency, great partnerships. They were bought out by a tech company, and that's fine. I can see the benefit of that. And everyone was told, oh, it'll be the same. It'll be even better. And then they removed all the client-facing people who had built those relationships and that trust and missed the meetings that had been set up. And it really erodes that trust and confidence. And you had mentioned earlier, Kristen, that, yeah, there are 200 more agencies knocking on the door who would like to have that relationship. So when you're going through this integration, as tough as it is, you have to remember, and I love that Tina said it in the beginning, that human aspect, because so much of this business is built on that relationship, on the trust, and on the customer service. If we just wanted a tech solution, we could buy that. We could build that. It's really that holistic component. So that should make people like Christoph feel really, really good. No, but I think you make a very, very important point, Lisa. And I think if there's one thing important, at the end of the day, you know, there's just a client, right? Because without clients, there's no business. And if you don't realize that, we at least try to make sure we don't make too many mistakes because we might. But one is start from buying companies that are already quite similar and passionate about the same thing. Again, we go back to purpose and you go back to what you're trying to build together, make sure that blends. And if it doesn't blend, you know, probably it's, it's a bad move because the risk is simply too high. You're going to scare away customers and have a bad experience. And the second one is don't start integrating everything all at once because probably it will go wrong and simply the business cannot follow. So just to give you an example there, we have onboarded Join Adults quite recently, beginning of July. And one of the you know, competences John Adal has and we didn't was a culture and trends, which is more like a foresight in units, all about trend watching and getting close to cultures. And, you know, it's very interesting. It's a very sexy service you can offer to clients, but at the same time, you know, if, if all of them would start demanding that service, we can simply not deliver. So it's also about keeping the right pace of integration and making sure you, you take one step at a time and not overdo it uh, because it backfires probably, you know. So... And again, of course, Lisa, please, you know, share your thoughts on whether or not we're doing things right or wrong. And then keep that level of openness with your clients. Like just, you know, tell tell us how we are doing. And if it's not going well, please help us to, to adjust. I think your clients are a lot more understanding than you might imagine, because I don't know an industry that's not going through consolidation, mergers and acquisitions. It happens on both sides. So we see a lot of that activity. And if you have, if you will, I think the other challenge, Christoph, and you mentioned this, is I've seen a lot of acquisitions where, let's say, the account rep comes back in after the acquisition and says, we have this whole portfolio of services. And if we ask a question about one of them and they know nothing about the service and they're not prepared or even who to call or how to bring that to bear to the new business challenges, that's also a missed opportunity. It's a fail. Very much so. Because you acquired the company for that capability and you can't tell me anything about it. You, you can't deliver it for me. So why are you even showing it to me? Absolutely. Well, I just want to bring up, Christoph, because you brought this up on the panel discussion in a Congress, which is that because you guys had never actually integrated a company before into Insights, when you did do your first acquisition, you brought in an outside consultant to kind of help with that integration. And I think I just wanted to bring it up because I do think a lot of times founders feel like, 
oh, I'm supposed to have all the answers and be able to do everything myself, even though I've never done this before. And I think that, you know, acknowledging that, hey, you didn't have all the answers and you actually did need some help because you hadn't gone through an integration before was a really, really smart approach. Yep. I was going to add to that as well and saying that, you know, as founders, a lot of people get earnouts, right, based on an acquisition. And so something that was through our discussion that we all had was that the integration plan, I believe, Christoph, you shared is done before the actual acquisition is done. And so you understand, number one, how you're going to operate. And we all know people get really, really nervous through an acquisition as their jobs still exist or not. So you get them comfortable. They know the plan. And also your clients have a better sense of what's going on. And so as a founder, I would definitely push to make sure you understand what the plan is, not just you know, valuation and check and great, let's go. It's also post acquisition. What does the world look like and how do you operate in that model? Yeah. So it'd be great to hear your perspective on that from, you know, a firm that is acquiring and investing in companies. Like, are there kind of standard operating procedures that you advise the firms that you're acquiring or investing on in? Or, you know, does Bain have a kind of a standard approach or best practices for ensuring that there isn't this kind of gap in service after after you make an investment or acquisition? Because this is, you know, super detrimental to the business if all of a sudden all the clients are walking away. (laughs) No, absolutely. Of course, it's a a critical topic for us that we uh, encounter all the time when we make acquisitions. I mean, maybe the first thing is that, you know, given that we're a private equity firm, in some cases, it makes it a little bit easier, the transition. I think, you know, if you have an acquisition by an industry player, by a strategic, then in many cases, the different parties try to integrate into businesses. And that is actually often the biggest challenge, essentially. While when we make an investment, in many cases, we try to kind of keep things as steady as possible throughout the closing process, which means that some of these challenges um, don't necessarily exist early on. However, you know, many cases, for example, the carve-outs or other types of investments where there's still some kind of challenge from an operational perspective. And, you know, to some degree, we've, of course, tried to develop some, some blueprints of how we deal with these situations. At the same time, it's never the same. So we spend, in, you know, a very high amount of time uh, thinking through what the challenges are, what the timelines look like, what needs to happen when. And, you know, that's something that we are very, very focused on in, in, in every single instance. So, so that's certainly true. If, if I can make it maybe just further build on that. So I think there are a couple of lessons we learned after, let's say, the fourth acquisition now, and we keep on learning, obviously, but I think there are a couple of learnings. One for us is indeed start working on integration management earlier. In our first acquisition, we only started thinking about is after closing. So now we start working three months in advance to get the whole plan ready and approved in all its possible details. The second one that we started introducing is have a, a proper set of clear guidelines, rules, and let's say a framework we would like to live by. So everybody understands this is more or less the game we want to play. And obviously there are changes possible, but there is already kind of a blueprint of how an integration should look like. So again, not too many surprises there. And then I think, you know, obviously it's about then keeping track of what you're doing and making sure everybody sees progress, which is one of the hardest things. What is progress? How do we define progress? And at some point we said, okay, integration management is maybe in its lightest format. It's making sure people can communicate and work with each other, right? And we use the same systems. But I think, you know, on integration management, I think there's another layer we are now only realizing we should harder is it's kind of transformation management. It's not just integrating, like, okay, we work together, fine. But it's making sure we get to the same space together and we try to do the same thing, which is actually not, it's not integrating. It's transforming that business, but maybe also ourselves as an acquirer to get into the same place together. 
Seema and Soren, I want to pivot back. Seema, I know you and I for sure are seeing an increase in founders and executive teams looking to sell. And I'm going to pose a question to you and Soren that is probably the most annoying question that you and I get on a daily basis, which is, what are reasonable multiples that you can expect? <laughs> and I think, I unfortunately, some of these wild valuations from like the Qualtrics of the world are kind of putting things out of whack. I know that we've you and I have seen an increase in phone calls from people that are expecting a Qualtrics like valuation. Yes. So And that's I like the first question actually too, without even digging into it. Always. Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to talk business, they want to know the valuation and Qualtrics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I'm sure you get a lot of that as well. So it'd be great to have an understanding from the two of you, you know, A, what are reasonable multiples if you can put a reasonable multiple because it's really hard to do, but I think more importantly, you know, what are the specific triggers that are driving high valuations of firms? I'm happy to start. So, I mean, this is going to be an answer which is probably not going to be particularly satisfying uh, in this context because it is very hard to generalize, especially in this industry, which kind of valuation multiples you can expect for businesses because it just depends on so many factors. You know, you look at other industries where it's frankly easier, like in enterprise software, you have certain bands on how you look at things. Market research, you know, which is also data and analytics, like the business models actually vary quite a bit. And that often makes it harder to kind of come to a view of which kind of valuation metric you should even apply, right? In many cases, there's, you know, multiples of and the data can be multiples of revenue. So people look at it in many different ways and it really depends on the type of specific business model that you're looking at. The types of businesses that, that attract higher multiples are certainly the ones that, you know, have a more recurring models that are more digital, maybe more automated, maybe higher growth or higher profitability. A lot of these things and, you know, probably, you know, Qualtrics ticks quite a few of these boxes. At the end of the day, probably the clearest point though is that, you know, especially when you talk to some potential investors or bankers, you know, just being very crisp around sort of this is the value proposition. This is the problem that we're solving for our customers. And that's why we're better at solving this problem than anyone else in the market. I think that's sort of the clear story that entrepreneurs need to articulate. And then I think we probably can move forward and think about what's the right way to think about valuation. I agree with what a lot of Soren said. And I think just based on experience, it's really hard at times for founders to really have that crisp story. Like, what do I do? Why do we exist? And what's the value we bring to the industry? Because they put their blood, sweat and tears into the business. And, you know, they want to explain in paragraphs and conversations about all the amazing things that they've done and greatly appreciate all the work they've done. But I think it's really being able to level up and say, this is exactly why we exist. And this is the business problem we solve. I'll just add another few things that are maybe a little bit on the softer side. I think the diversification of revenue is really important, whether it's reoccurring or ad hoc, and also concentration of revenue. If it's, you know, diversified across multiple clients versus concentrated and, you know, one major client and the rest all other, if you will. Um, I would not underestimate the value that you bring to the table with your executive team. If it's co-founders, if it's a good management team that can be plugged into a company and potentially used for other roles, I think that's incredibly valuable. We've already talked about technology. And essentially, does the story hold together, right? You said this is why you exist. And does your journey, like there's been meetings we've had and we're like, that's a good story. That story holds together. I like that story. And it might not. People understand there's blips around on the road. But overall, your story holds together. And I think that's an important point as well. Yeah, for sure. So I like to end all webinars with 
a key takeaway from each person, and we did this at SMR Congress, so we're going to do it again here. And I'm going to ask each of you, what's one key takeaway that the audience should leave with today? And Seema, if you can speak to trends, Soren to M&A, Christoph to founders, and Lisa to research buyers, that would be super helpful. We'll kick things off with Seema. Sure. So one key takeaway is, from a trends perspective, understand how they relate to your business. Don't ignore them. They're not going away. And be proactive in terms of how you manage your business within the trends in the landscape. Do something. Be proactive. Sorry. Sure. I mean, I think I would, you know, we started on a sobering note around how growth has stalled in this industry. But I think, you know, it shouldn't detract you from that. There's a lot of interest in M&A in the industry, and there's a lot of investors out there who want to invest. So my, my message will be be encouraged and reach out to investors and make pitch. Christoph. Yeah, taking a founder perspective, I think just remember, as a founder, it's still your story and it's still your strategy. And that means, first of all, really work hard on getting the story right, even though for you it's obvious, it's not for them. So make it also logic and also to the point that Simo was making. It should be a coherent, compelling, interesting, differentiated mm-hmm. story. Make sure you stay in the lead now and later. Don't end up somewhere behind in the bus instead of behind the steering wheel. And then a final note there, which also blends in the story and the strategies, don't mess with culture. We talked a lot about people, the importance of people, the importance of relationship, the importance of humanizing in our industry. Culture, you know, is first and foremost important in any transaction if you, you know, take the founder perspective. And Lisa? Well, I think we have a choice when we look at all of the change that's happening in the industry. We can either be afraid or we can be excited. And what I would say to corporate researchers or research buyers is embrace this opportunity. Be excited that when you have this kind of investment, these types of mergers, it gives you new opportunities to embrace new technologies, new capabilities, new data. Don't be afraid of it because what it can do is it can help you solve problems differently and it can help you redefine what your job is and what value you bring to your organization. Right. Lisa, Soren, Christoph, Dima, thank you so much for getting back on this webinar and recapping for all the folks that couldn't attend Congress this year. Thank you, everyone, today for attending, and thank you again to our panelists. Wow, that was a lot of information to take in. I hope that we accomplished our goal of demystifying some of the process as it relates to um, potentially selling your company, merging your company, also providing some insight into some of the M&A trends, and then obviously making sure we understand the client perspective in all of this, because ultimately they are helping our businesses grow and, and fuel that growth. Um, if you have any questions for myself or the panelists, please feel free to email me, Sima S-I-M-A, at infinity-number2.com. I will make sure to respond, or I will make sure our other panelists, if you have questions for them, will respond as well. I did want to also share that I've been working on a very cool series, data quality series that's sponsored by Imperium, where we talk to CEO and presidents from other industries that deal with tons more data than we do, and uh, really having in-depth conversations as to how they deal with the internal processes of data quality, managing data quality, managing client expectations, and ultimately, how do they deal with competition? Um, I learned a ton through these discussions, and I'm excited to bring that to our listeners as well. 
I sh will be publishing it over the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out. Until then, have a great week ahead and look forward to having you tune back in. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.